0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome a legendary music master, Mr. Tommy James, to the show today. Some of you may know of him as a former tornado. At age four, he debuted in his first fashion show. The man makes Indiana Jones look like a chump. Ed Sullivan insists he's from New York when he's really from Dayton, Ohio. He thinks he might be a mob magnet, and we're very concerned. We actually think he is, too. (laughs) He stood up Frank Sinatra and still lived to talk about it. What we all know about Tommy James and the Shandals is their wonderful music that excites us. Hanky Panky, Moni Moni, I Think We're Alone Now, Crimson and Clover, and one of my favorite songs in the whole world, the song that opened this show, Crystal Blue Persuasion. This song is so pretty that I asked my mother as a young girl, if I ever died before her, would she please play this at my funeral? It's that beautiful. Tommy James is not only the lead singer and songwriter of Tommy James and the Shondells, he has sold more than 100 million records. He has been awarded 23 gold singles and nine gold and platinum albums. He's touring all over the country today. We're going to talk with Tommy about his life, his work, his marvelous book, Me, the Mob, and the Music, that he wrote with Martin Fitzpatrick. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Tommy James to It's Rainmaking Time.
1: Wow. Wow, what a a great intro. Thank you. Nice (laughs) to be with you.
0: Great to be with you. I'm glad you're still alive.
1: Yeah, that makes two of us. (laughs)
0: Reading your story does make Indiana Jones look like such a chump.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, I'll tell you, and, and unfortunately it's true. The
0: interesting dynamic between you and Morris Levy, the crime boss, and ending up with the head of a crime family as the one who owns your record label, you, the band, your music, your publishing, everything, and that whole struggle, people really should read it because... This still goes on today, it's just that you don't know who the Morris Levy's are.
1: (laughs) Well, that's very very true. And I must tell you, this was essentially, of course, an autobiography, but about two-thirds of the book is devoted to this very dark and sinister story with roulette records that was our label that we had the bulk of our hits on, with us trying to have a career in rock and roll with this very sinister story going on in the background that we really couldn't talk about. And so finally, about eight years ago, this is true, Martin and I started the book, and I'd been asked for a long time to do memoirs and talk about everything that went on. We got about a third into the book, and we were going to write a nice story called Crimson and Clover. It was going to be about music and recording sessions and so forth. And we got about a third of the way into it and realized that if we don't tell the whole roulette story, we're really cheating ourselves and everybody else. But I was very uncomfortable back then talking about all this. I really had kept it sort of under wraps for a very long time, and I was some of these guys were still walking around, so I was a little nervous about it. So we waited until the last of the roulette regulars, as I called them, passed on in 06, and we felt that we then could finish the story, and we did. So we took about another three years to finish the thing get all the proper names spelled right and everything and told the story with the dates and really told it and finally at the end of all that simon and schuster picked up the book immediately and we were very gratified by that because they usually do you know presidential memoirs and things like that so they picked it up and put it out and suddenly you just got an incredible response from the public and from the media And then we got calls for the Broadway and the movie rights. So it's going to be a movie in about another, oh, two years. Barbara Dufina, who produced Goodfellas and Hugo two years ago with Martin Scorsese and Casino and just a whole lot of really great movies, is going to produce it as a major film. So the public will actually get to experience all this, finally.
0: I want to talk a little bit with you about your rainmaking activities because what I recognize is that you did a lot of your own promotion. You really did a lot of your own sales and worked a lot of behind-the-scenes To put things in place. You say here, we had enough of a following by then to guarantee a good sized crowd and everybody made money. By early 1965, we had a smartly functioning little machine going. I worked out a deal with the kids in my high school art department to make posters for our upcoming dances. We hired off duty cops as bouncers and to work security. Now, someone who's just singing. Or just writing doesn't do this. But a rainmaker does. <laughs> ah,
1: well, listen, you know, truthfully, that was, of course, back in high school. And, you know, I just, I guess all my life I've been sort of a, an entrepreneur, I guess you could say. I always felt that once you had the goods, the idea was to go out and sell it. And so I was very lucky that I was allowed to do that, first of all. And secondly, that our band back in my hometown of Niles, Michigan, was good enough where I, I felt we could go ahead and do that.
0: You talk about working with good producers and how that's so important. Now, mm-hmm. you also were involved in producing some work for Patty Austin, correct?
1: Well, yeah, that was much later on, yeah, I try to put it in context. Sure. This was after the Shondells and I broke up, this was in the early 70s, and I was producing, of course, I had already produced Tommy James and the Shondells for a number of years by that point, and gradually I just sort of went out and started producing other people. For CBS, I started producing uh, Exile, Patty Austin, uh, Lawrence Reynolds, and several other people for Clive Davis up at Columbia. And I always was as interested in the making of the records as I was in songwriting and performing.
0: Could you explain to the audience, what does a good producer do? What are they responsible for?
1: A record producer, of course, is responsible for pretty much the whole thing. I've always called it a kind of a thankless job. It's sort of like being a manager. But with Tommy James and the Shondells, I basically began with Moni Moni and Crimson and Clover. I began producing the group, and the group helped a lot. I mean, don't get me wrong, they were involved in this, but I gradually began to produce where we had been produced by other people before. And it's a craft that you learn, like songwriting. The mechanics of making a record, the science of making records, quite amazing, uh, all the way from getting the song into the studio and played by musicians and getting it down on tape at that time, and then uh, the whole process of mixing and molding the thing into the record that you have in your head, and then finally getting it out on record and getting it played on the radio, because the radio has a lot of science involved, particularly in the old days with AM radio, where they had the, the limiters and the compressors built into the radio signal where making a record for radio was really quite a difficult job. It was a, a very time consuming, it was expensive, I mean, you could do it cheap, but I mean my first record was the cheapest record ever made. Uh, honestly, it's a it's a it's fun and it's really getting into the mechanical nature of recording and the science of recording.
0: Back in the days you had written in your book that you can tell how different groups compare themselves because there would be a lot of screaming in the audiences that would tell the real star status of what's going on. Can you share a little about
1: that? Well, sure. Basically, at the very beginning of our career, I remember the the very first summer in 1966 that we were out touring, the idea of having uh, an audience really go wild was, was a very, very new thing. And I had never experienced that before. And uh, after you start having hits, it just kind of happens. And, of course, then you start comparing yourself with the other groups. I wrote in the book that we'd gotten into it. There were other groups that were on the road with us. And you you would always compare your the applause and the screams you got with the other groups. And you sort of decided who deserved to close the show. You know, (laughs) it was sort of a, uh, I don't know what you call it, I guess a, a sort of a feeding frenzy. And you could just kind of figure out from the excitement of the audience who was who. There was kind of a pecking order.
0: (laughs) It was fiercely competitive then. There were so many great groups at the time that you were out there. How did you stand it?
1: The 1960s were just a really magical moment because all the ducks were in a row and media and the record companies and all of the agencies and the publishers and the managers were all looking for the next big act. And it was all about music and it was like anything goes the rules were being made then so it was really a a marvelous moment in history to make it and i always have been very grateful that i made it when we did and especially with roulette let me just tell a little bit of the story hanky panky my first record was actually recorded back in high school in niles michigan my hometown and just kind of came and went because we had no distribution in 1964 i was a junior in high school and finally in 1965 i graduated and i took my band on the road and we played clubs 1965 and early 1966 through the midwest and right in the middle of my two weeks i'm playing a dumpy club in janesville wisconsin in early 1966 and right in the middle of my two weeks the club owner goes belly up in the middle of right in the middle of my two weeks. And so we basically have to go home after that We We got laid off and, and I went back home and I, that's just how the good Lord works because the minute I got home, I got the call that changed my life that hanky panky out of nowhere had exploded out of Pittsburgh and we were sitting at number one. And if I hadn't have been home at that moment, I would have never got that call. So, I'm immediately thrust, that's one of those only in America stories, I'm immediately thrust, well, first of all, to Pittsburgh, where I picked up the new group of Shondells that were sort of a bar band there, and a week later, we're in New York selling the record to uh, a major label who would take it international. So, this is in May of 1966, and we got a yes from all the labels. We got a yes from Columbia, RCA, and... Atlantic? Atlantic and Kamasutra, remember them? Yes. And so the last place we took the record to was Roulette, and we kind of dropped it off. And I went to bed that night feeling great, thinking that you know we were going to go with Columbia or Atlantic or one of the big corporate labels. And the next morning, about nine o'clock, I start getting calls back from all these record companies that saying, "Listen, Tom, we got to pass." I said, "What do you mean you got to pass? I thought we had a deal." And finally. Jerry Wexler at Atlantic told me the truth that Morris Levy, this notorious head of roulette records, had called all the other record companies and basically uh, scared them off, said, this is my record (laughs) and uh, backed them all down. And we apparently were going to be on roulette records, whether we liked it or not. And that's quite honestly how we got on roulette. Basically, basically, what we learned when we went to Roulette, and Roulette did take the record, by the way, and made it a number one record in the United States and all over the world. The problem was Roulette, in addition to being a functioning and a pretty good little record label, was also a front for the Genovese crime family in New York. <laughs> oh, God. And so this made life real interesting, and we learned that incrementally. We didn't know it when we signed.
0: You didn't have counsel with you when you signed with Roulette, did you? No. How did that happen to you?
1: Well, <laughs> basically, be we right about it. I had Chuck Rubin and Bob Mack, two characters that uh, one of them was the fellow who brought us into Pittsburgh originally, who became my first manager, and his friend in New York who was the head of ABC Agency, took me around to all the various labels. And they were the ones, because I was really a babe in the woods. I had no idea what I was doing. And they took me around to the record companies. Well, when Roulette basically glommed all the action, and I really didn't have a problem with that at the beginning, because I had been well aware of Roulette Records and all the great acts they'd had. So I was okay with it. The funny part is, if I had gone with Columbia or RCA or Atlantic or one of the big labels, I can tell you right now, with a record like Hanky Panky, we would have been a one-hit wonder at best. We would have been lucky to be a one-hit wonder, because we would have been immediately handed over to some A&R guy, and we would have been lost in the numbers. At Roulette, they hadn't had a hit in over three years, and they actually needed us. And one of the things I was always grateful to Roulette for, even though doing business with them was a disaster, (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things I was always grateful for was the fact that they left us alone and allowed us to sort of morph into whatever we could become.
0: When you got done creating a song, did you know which ones were the hits?
1: Well, we had real strong feelings. I must tell you, I was very lucky because I always had good writers around me. I always had people around me who were really excited about my career and wanted to see us make it. So I basically had a lot of good material around me. But the challenge, of course, was always to come up with the next record. And that's a very daunting challenge. But we recorded enough songs so that we would hone in on something and say, you know what, that's the single. So we had enough material and we had enough people around us writing, uh, including myself, of course, in the group, that we pretty much knew what the single was going to be before we put a lot of time into it we had strong feelings about it of course you never know you know you can always get fooled i mean i remember with song like dragon line was the b-side of a record church street Soul revival in 1971 and that was i really got fooled i didn't think dragon line was any more than a b-side and suddenly radio starts playing it all over the country to play the b-side so i went back in the studio and remixed it and uh, put horns on it and you know, fluffed it up a little bit and then put it out as a single and it became a top 10 record. But generally speaking, we knew which were the A-sides.
0: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Tommy James. The Declaration of a National and International Water Crisis is a declaration about water that comes directly from snow melt and rainfall. It has nothing to do with the water that exists below your feet, underground, into faulted structures all over the world. I want you to know that there is an unlimited supply of available fresh water everywhere on Earth, including the deserts. For over 100 years, teams of people have been locating water for private people. And the reason you haven't heard of it is that it is not part of the mainstream orthodoxy of geology that's taught at universities. When you think about people and animals in developing nations having to walk miles to bring back a bucket of water, I want you to know that that is an unacceptable atrocity. Nobody should have to go through that. I've made a commitment to make water available to sophisticated investors and to people in need across the world and to make commercial applications available for water In the United States and abroad, there's only a water crisis as it relates to snowmelt and rainfall, not having to do with the third source of water, which is below our feet. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are a sophisticated investor or a farmer that would be interested in having your own water supply that is independent of the aquifers, feel free to call it's rainmaking time. The good news is that there's plenty of water everywhere for anybody and any animal on planet Earth that needs it. Thank you very much. And back to the show. You, you write about how Billboard was very frustrating because they would have these top five lists. You went number one in both trade papers, and yet they got you at like a number six. And so it was very hard for researchers and historians to go back to check the archives for a record's history because you say they inevitably got a skewed sense of how popular it really was. Has that changed now?
1: There's only one trade paper left, basically. There's charts, but Billboard has become sort of the last of the big trade papers, so that problem doesn't exist anymore. But what would happen is that there were three primary trade papers, Billboard, Cashbox, and Record World. And they owned the industry for a long time, but they were based on different criteria. Record World was always based on radio airplay. Cashbox was based on record sales, over-the-counter sales. And Billboard was supposedly a combination of both, sort of general popularity. When you'd put a record out, the first thing that would happen is you get airplay. And the airplay would go on for about, two to three weeks before somebody decided if they really wanted to pay money for the record and go buy it. So there'd be this two to three week lag time between the charts produced by Record World and the charts produced by Cashbox. You know, it was like a seesaw effect. So you could be three weeks ahead in Record World than you were in Cashbox, and you could end up going number one in Record World two to three weeks before cash box. That meant you had to stay number one for the period of time it took to get you up to number one in the other trade paper. And Billboard then, who was in the middle, would be, you know, if in one trade paper you could be number one in the other trade paper you'd be number 12 and they'd have you at number six. So unless you stayed number one for the period of time it took for your record sales to catch up, you were always somewhere in the middle in Billboard. And Billboard, since it's ended up being the last trade paper standing, is where people get all their information. So you may have had a number one record, but in Billboard, you're listed at number six, and that's kind of where you stay.
0: When you wrote about what Morris told them, it made me laugh. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, Morris Levy, you got to understand, was a very frightening character. Morris Levy, the head of the label, was a, an associate. He was Jewish, so he wasn't a made man, but he was... A strong associate of the Genovese crime family. His partners up there were all heads of the family. You know, Tommy Eboli was the head of the Genovese family, and he was his immediate partner. And so all these characters were hanging out up at Roulette. It was used as everything from a social club to, you know, illegal bank accounts and running all kinds of illegal things through there. We learned all that later. But the point was that Morris's partners and Morris himself was a very scary character. And we had to walk on eggshells while we were up there. And I guess that was the point of the book, you know, how frightening that became at certain points. We had incredible success. We always had to sort of juggle the facts and say, you know, do we take our lives in our hands and try to get out of here because they are not paying royalties? Which was the problem, of course.
0: And your royalty deal was very little, but at the end, when you had your account and check things, even with your lousy royalty deal with Roulette, they owed you, what, $40 million?
1: Between 30 and $40 million
0: Unbelievable.
1: Now. And that's just the money that, you know, we had to, those are just things I had to accept, and it was kind of hard, but, you know, that's just the way it was. Of course, you know, we were making money in all kinds of other areas, like uh, touring and BMI and ASCAP. It wasn't like we we weren't making money, but mechanical royalties were just not going to happen. And of course, that was always the issue. And it was always the issue because if you pushed it too far, something bad could happen to you.
0: Did you think he would kill you?
1: There were a couple of moments where it got real hairy. I, I remember, of course, they, they let us know. I don't know if you knew the Jimmy Rogers story, but Jimmy Rogers was a big artist in the late 50s, early 60s, had honeycomb and and this is sweeter than wine. Jimmy went for his royalties and wouldn't stop, and they basically uh, tried to take him out. He was left for dead on an L.A. freeway. Almost beaten to death, they they left him for dead. He was never the same after that. He survived, but just barely. And this could happen to anybody who pushed it too far, and we knew that. So we constantly had to make uh, a choice of take our life in our hands and try to get out of this thing, this contract, or do we stay and put up with it because we are having such tremendous success on roulette?
0: Wow, what a life. What a story. (laughs) What a story. Do you think it still goes on but with different names?
1: Well, I'm sure to some extent. Of course, the mob does not run things like it used to. You know, I mean, the mob was running Las Vegas at one time, and now the corporations have it. I don't believe right now as as effective in the, in the music business as they once were. Although a lot of street-level deals are still going on, they don't have control of the major labels. Although, you know, they do raise their head every now and then, you, you hear about it, but not nearly like it was in the 60s and
0: 70s. When I left my tournament tennis career and I was teaching tennis, Tommy, I used to teach uh, Barry Gordy as one of my students. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And so he took me, I went to met him at his house and he took me up to this room in his house and everybody said, oh my God, he's mafia. Be careful. Uh, you know? And I didn't really know what they meant. <laughs> right. So I beat him in chess and there were like 10 guys surrounding the table and I thought, oh, I'm not feeling very well, sir. I'm just not feeling <laughs> very well. Yeah. There were like ten guys surrounding us. I thought, okay, never again. And then he insisted on taping the lessons. I, I was a mess. And then he took me to this room that had no doors. <laughs> right? He would laugh, probably remember yeah. it. I hope I stay alive telling the story. But anyway... Um,
1: well, you know, it's, it's, you know, so many of these record companies and the guys who ran them really came off the street. So many of them were street guys and just smart people. But came off the streets, and particularly all of the little independent labels back in the early 60s when the industry just exploded. The late 50s, early 60s. Uh, rock and roll always seemed to, because it was a fast way to make a buck for a lot of these guys, it attracted people like that. So that was, you know, where it all came from. And of course, later on, as the corporations sort of became dominant, it was just like Las Vegas. Gradually, uh, the corporations took over. It's very interesting, and there, there seems to be a moment in history when there was more mob uh, involvement in the entertainment business than later or before.
0: In 1967, you had this profound transformation where you were growing into being a seasoned professional, and you insisted on rock star treatment. You were playing consistently for crowds of 50 to 60,000 people, and you were just beginning to understand what it means to be stars. But I I would like you to share that revelation, because that's a big one.
1: All I can say is that there's this moment when it hits you that this is actually happening. I'll tell you, the moment it happened for me in 1967, you're always plotting and trying to get the next record, and you really don't have time to think and reflect very much. It's not nearly as romantic as you think it's going to be. But the moment it hit me, I'll never forget. I took a limo from New York to Atlantic City, New Jersey. And I was, for the first time, playing Atlantic City at Steel Pier. And I just remember the limo pulling up, and I see this 40-foot marquee on the side of Steel Pier. And on one side it said, Ricky Nelson. (laughs) And on the other side it said, Tommy James. And I just... I looked at that and at that moment, because you know Ricky's for so long had been one of my heroes and his memory still is today. Ricky was one of my heroes and he was such a monster act at that moment. And when I looked and saw our names together like that, it just blew my mind. And that was the first time it really hit me. I wanted to pinch myself, you know, that this is real. And I can't tell you what it did to me in that moment and I wrote about it in the book. And it, it just absolutely floored me. And uh, I guess that's what you were referring to. Yeah,
0: this experience of being prominent.
1: It is It is very definitely something that messes with your mind. And it's really very important to not get so caught up in it that it takes your reality away from you. I can't tell you how important it is to really have to be centered Because uh, when when you're that young and you have that kind of success, it can really play with you.
0: Are there people you see on television and in film and on the radio and other musicians that sometimes you would like to give a message to?
1: You mean on that subject? Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we all know the stories of people who have had such a difficult time adjusting to success. You know, it's something you think you always want psychologically. You think you always want it, but you know, wanting and having are two different things. They really are. One of the things that uh, you know, keeping your head on straight is just so difficult. I can tell you from first-hand experience, it was difficult for me. And there's many people that you you know you can. We all know who we're talking about. <laughs> you know, we've all we've all seen them uh, people who just you know can't deal with it, can't handle it, and And it ends up destroying you if you let it. I suppose there's a great morality story in that. There's something spiritual about that. And, of course, we all know what it is. It's being grounded in God, I think. Although I suppose that isn't absolutely necessary, but ultimately it is. Uh, It's very important to know why you believe what you believe in and to play it like a game. This is a game. This, especially this kind of success that's so whimsical, is a game. And if you don't see it that way, it's going to destroy you.
0: The seduction is f- incredible. I remember when a lot of the tennis players would quit the game. There's another phenomenon, which is you go to the height of what you can go to. Mm-hmm. You get all the accolades, all the applause, all the stuff, all the rankings, all the prominence, and then you're in the vacuum. You leave that part of your life at the level at which you were. And then you have to live in the day-to-day where yeah. you're not in that anymore. You're in a vacuum.
1: Well, and that's why it's so important to get it up front. That's why it's so important. Look, a career, especially when you're in it for life, a career ebbs and flows. It comes and goes. You have to wait for your moments of opportunity to walk through the door. They come, but you've got to wait for them, and you've got to be ready for success stay ready for success when you're in the music business and the entertainment business in general i really believe that if you're going to survive it you got to just understand that it changes there's an ebb and a flow and and it's sort of like um oh i i don't know i guess it's like having a meal i mean you you know you eat this part of it and then you eat that part of it and you have to stay well balanced Because if it all goes at once, if you allow it to all go, it's like having money. If you spend it all immediately, you're not going to have it later. So it's very important to be economical with your career. I guess that's the word. For example, actresses, we all know, you know, they come out a Child Star, and then suddenly they're playing more grown-up roles. And before you know it, they're playing middle-aged women, and then they're playing, uh, you know, somebody old. Well, that's what it's like. You've got a, you, but you're still an actor, still an actress, even though your role changes. And that's how you're gonna be. If you try to play a kid when you're 30, you're gonna look ridiculous. You know what I'm saying?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you talked about how when you wrote "Crystal Blue Persuasion," or actually, it was a Christian poem inspired by the Book of Revelation. That this young fan came to you with this poem, and that yes. it was one of the hardest records you ever made. When I ask people, listen to this most beautiful song, and they, when they find out about when it was made, they say, was it about crystal meth? And I said, are you listening to the words? Do you hear the beautiful music? I mean, are you hearing the same piece of music?
1: That's what they did on uh, Breaking Bad a few weeks ago. Uh, crystal Blue Persuasion was the, uh, was the song that they, that they featured in the show, and it was all about crystal meth. And uh, so I said, no! <laughs> uh, no, Crystal Blue Persuasion was a Christian song that I wrote. We didn't care about being politically incorrect. It was just a snapshot, and it was one of the hardest records that I ever made because uh, when we, we we completely overproduced it. When we made the record, we had drums in it, we had several guitars, we had keyboards, and we had just a whole lot of stuff going on that was just way too much. And when we finished the record, we listened to it and said, you know what, it's not crystal blue anymore. So we spent the first six weeks producing it, the second six weeks unproducing it. We were pulling things out. And little by little, we pulled out the drums, we pulled out all the electric guitars, we pulled out the non-essential keyboards. And what we were left with was a a bongo drum, a conga, a flamenco guitar, and a couple of rhythm instruments, uh, and a little trickle of organ. And that was the, became the whole record. So we had to empty out the record to let it breathe.
0: Wow. You, you, nobody would good. ever know. Nobody would ever know behind the scenes what goes into what we hear, and what you had to do to bring it there is a whole different world.
1: Well, that's true. We were very lucky that we saw that, because I'm sure the record would have stiffed if we had put it out the way it was. <laughs>
0: Talk a little bit about your mentor. You said that Red Schwartz was one of your mentors, or he was a guru in the promotion area. You bet. And he had signed with the Beatles before people had even heard of them.
1: Also the Four Seasons. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, Red Schwartz, uh, who was the national promotion director up at Roulette, and I got to be very close. And Red was sort of a middle-aged guy who had a lot of history red was one of the characters up at roulette you know it's funny i don't want to change the subject everybody up at roulette was like this they were characters they were interesting people with a past they weren't just sort of nebulous guys hanging out at the record company they all were stars in their own right and red schwartz had actually started out as a disc jockey in philadelphia and knew everybody and then became a promotion man out at vj records out in chicago and was involved in signing the Beatles to VJ a year before they made it. They made it in late '63 on Capitol, but they had really kicked around the record business a lot. And they had done an album with Red Schwartz and the people at VJ Records in '62, a year before they made it. And of course, he w- was involved with Frankie Valli in Four Seasons when they signed to VJ before. Uh, It was their first label, and uh, he was really an amazing promotion man. Basically dealt with singles. So he and I became very, very close, and he took me under his wing. He was a middle-aged guy, and I was 19 years old. And he took me under his wing and really promoted Tommy James and the Shondells. And together we would work the phones and call every radio station in the country and really made friends at radio, and he taught me everything he knew about radio and record promotion which has lasted me this very day just amazing because we really were creatures of the radio more than you know some acts become famous from their concerts and some from songwriting and so forth we were creatures of the radio we were created by radio and red schwartz really was the guy who made that happen and i always will be grateful for knowing him he died a few years ago and I got a chance to say goodbye to him before he, he died of cancer. So I was very lucky to know him, and I wrote about him in the book.
0: What did your parents say to you during these times? Did they have any inkling that you were really in trouble, you were overlorded, seriously?
1: Well, I would tell them, and they were very concerned. Uh, you know, I'm an only child, and I was very close with my mom and dad. And I would tell them everything. They actually came to New York and met Morris. And several of these guys, uh, of course, Morris was on his best behavior. but uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. He treated them very, very well. But, you know, the bottom line was they, they knew what I was going through.
0: I just imagine that your parents must have suffered quietly behind the scenes. Well, they
1: did, and it's true. And we would always talk about how things were, but you know, the bottom line was that I was on my own, and of course the great myth about the record business is that you think, I'll never forget when I signed with Roulette, and I went up and had my first meeting with Morris and the execs up there, I was sure that some grown-up was going to take me by the hand and walk me through all this and say, here's what we've got planned for you, and uh uh-uh, none of that. First thing I was asked when I met with Morris is, okay, kid, what's next? asking me what's next. And I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I don't know how hanky panky happened. How do I know what's coming next? So that was really what sort of shook me into understanding that I'm, I'm really doing this by myself. I've got the group and to some extent they can help me. But uh, really, I, as far as finding the material and finding the writers and producers, I'm on my own. So I really had my job cut out for me.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Tommy James. You are tuning into an advertising space, but it's not like any kind of advertising space. It is called a coherent advertising space. It means that you are plugging into the energetics of this program, this conversation, the consciousness, and you want to be part of the magic. You could be an individual that really wants to send this segment all over the world. You just want to do it, and you want to plug in your financing to do it. Or you could be a company that has an advanced product line, a very exotic, unusual product or service that is revolutionary or revelatory that you want to put on the map, and you want to be part of this conversation with Tommy James. If that would interest you, call us at 626-398-8652 and we'll plug you right in, and we'll bounce this thing all over the world. And back to the show. You met Janis Joplin and so many remarkable people in your genre, and I'm sure have incredible stories. Some you have published in the book. Is there anything that you would like to share that you didn't publish in the book, just for keeping? It, sure. Well, there's
1: lots of stuff. Well, I mean, just for say, are there a couple of in the book? There's about ten or fifteen that I'm you sure. I'm for, sure.
0: Are know? there any nuggets you would like to share that come to mind that maybe kind of? Well, neat.
1: I, you know, <laughs> you can I, do I, it. I have to think a little bit. He's but, gone.
0: But, He's gone.
1: <laughs> but uh, you know, the bottom line is that I did get a chance to meet so many interesting people. I'll never forget. The Beatles wrote us, you know, when the Beatles were starting Apple, they basically were starting it out as a publishing company. And their idea was to write songs for their friends in the business, to write songs for other artists. This is before it became a record label. One of the artists they wrote for was uh, George Harrison, as a matter of fact, wrote a tape full of songs for us after Money Money went number one in England. Uh, he was producing a group called Grapefruit at the time, and George and Grapefruit wrote us about a dozen songs. And they were all like Money Money. And the problem was, by the time he got them to us, we were already doing Crimson and Clover and had pretty much changed our style from, you know, we'd sort of left the party rock days behind and we weren't doing songs like that anymore. But I was always very grateful that George wrote us these songs, and I never really had a proper chance to thank him for doing that. Wow. Nice. that is one little thing we had a John Lennon and I had a great talk in seventy one at the b m i dinner we I was getting an award for a uh, Dragon Line and he was getting it for imagine and we sat back to back and uh, Yoko was with him and we ended up in a big discussion that night had a great talk about the industry and what admirers we were and of each other and fans of each other and stuff like that and It was really a wonderful uh these are great little tidbits that I will probably put some of them in the movie but, uh, you know, are not in the book.
0: You say that in your book that the monkeys had one of the best music deals in the business and that your music was influenced technically by the Beach Boys with this professional system that they had. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, the first time, uh, this was on, actually on the road. And the first time that I had ever worked with a really professional monitor system was the Beach Boys, and this was 66. We were playing in Boston together. Before I had worked with them, we had always worked with PA systems that basically were just out systems. They were just loud, raucous systems, and you never knew what was coming out of them. You tried to have a good sound man, but you never really knew. The Beach Boys basically had a studio sound right on stage. It was amazing. The monitors they had and the people running their monitor system, they could blend their harmony perfectly, and and everybody was listening like you'd be listening in the studio. And, of course, six months later, everybody had a monitor system like that, including (laughs) us. But back then, this was the first time I had... They were such perfectionists with their sound. And they took that studio sound right on the road with them, and I was just blown away because I loved the Beach Boys. It was a real thrill getting to work with the acts that had been my heroes.
0: Do you ever see and, any of the Rascals?
1: <laughs> oh, the Rascals and I are great friends to this very day. You know, they're out on the road again. Wow. Did you know that?
0: No, I didn't know. Well, yes, I think rascals, I think I heard that a few they're years alive,
1: ago. Which is amazing. <laughs> you know, they're, they're all living. And they just did a beautiful stint on Broadway. Stevie Van Zandt wrote a play for them called Once Upon a Dream, and it was taken from their album title in the 67, and they did a month on Broadway and sold out every show. It was great. Wow. And they're now on the road. They're going to be back on Broadway in December. Of course, all the Rascals are great friends of mine. We've been friends all this time. We we had the same booking agent. We worked a lot together. We've written songs together, and it's been Really? really a... Have you I always some? felt uh, with with the Rascals that we were on a journey together. So I'm so glad they're still doing it.
0: Courtney Cox says she may have danced with Bruce Springsteen, but can't forget Tommy James. And Dick Clark talks about how in the early days with the Shandells, through your career as a solo artist that you made wonderful hits and that your music has become part of the soundtrack of our lives. And Dolly Parton loves you and is swept away by Crimson and Clover. And so you still have huge amount of fans all over the world, myself included. You're still traveling and touring, correct?
1: Yes, indeed. We're all over the country this year. If anybody would like to come to TommyJames.com and just check out the dates and see when we'll be near you. I really believe that being a working act is the centerpiece of everything else you do in rock and roll. And it's awfully hard to maintain a career in rock and roll without doing rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> and without doing it in front of people, so yeah, we tour every year, and we have our own label now aura a u r oh i, and I we're like in that stores we've got a lot of <laughs> new product out you know uh it's available in the stores uh we just have we have a brand new distribution deal international distribution deal with allegro distributors, big independent, so for the first time, all of our music is available. Everywhere at the same time. And all
0: the music publishing, even from the past? Oh, yes. Well, let's
1: put it this way. Yeah. Uh, all the stuff we weren't getting paid for, of course, we're getting paid for now.
0: Fantastic. Uh,
1: Warner Brothers, Rhino Records has our roulette masters, and then we have all of our own from 1979 on, so we own most of our own publishing.
0: When you finally were able to get yourself off of drugs... Talk to us before we close the show a little bit about really how you did it. Because I think well, people should hear it. I
1: was, you know, we were always popping something, and we were fearless back then. Uh, today, if I ever took that stuff, they'd find me in a field somewhere. But honestly, uh, I can't believe how you have no fear when you're in your 20s, and you just take drugs without thinking about it, whatever they are, whatever somebody hands you. It's just amazing. But 1986, I went to the Betty Ford Center. The ones that finally got me were booze and Valium, and I just, uh, pretty dangerous combination. Of course, they're all dangerous, but that was particularly dangerous. Uh, You know, I just lived my life for a long time in a chemical haze, and that is the truth. And thankfully, I've never relapsed since then, so it's been 27 years this year.
0: What do you attribute it to, though?
1: Well, first of all, uh, I just couldn't stand myself anymore. <laughs> you know, it was really as simple as that. And I just have a real desire to stop. You know, I'm alcoholic. I'm always going to be alcoholic. I'm what they call a recovering alcoholic. But, you know, that just is the way it is. And that's the hand that I got dealt. The bottom line is that I don't do chemicals of any kind anymore. And what I attribute it to is the good Lord, and I guess you could say uh, a lot of reasons to not do it, including my wife and my son and my own life and those great fans out there who have been with me for over 40 years. And what can I say? People like you.
0: Thank you very much. I understand that you've been married a very, very long time, happily married a long time. How many years? Since birth. (laughs) Yeah, really. That's right. Yeah. Actually, even uh, before you came in, you were married.
1: Yes. <laughs> well, uh, the, you know, it, the, the song Three Times in Love was no joke. It was, uh, I've been married three times. The first two times were pretty short. The wonderful lady I'm married to now, Linda, and I have been married since 19. We've been together since 72. You're going uh,
0: into Guinness Book of Records.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. uh,
1: 41 years is a long time, and it's been a great ride.
0: That's extraordinary. You know, I did a little strange thing last week when we got the schedule committed. I put in a call to Carlos Santana, Mm -hmm. and I asked him if he would call and say hi, because, you know, Carlos really likes your music, and he did a piece, Crystal Blue Persuasion.
1: Yes, I saw that on YouTube.
0: Was that beautiful?
1: Yes, it was. Amazing. Beautiful job. Oh,
0: my God, yeah. I've never heard. Yes, exactly. And he wasn't able to make it today, but I really feel like you should be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, I know the Rascals were and other wonderful groups were. I don't know how that works, but I hope that you are in our lifetime. Well, listen,
1: you know, truthfully, you know when I'd like to see it happen if I had my druthers? When the movie comes out. Very good. That's really when I'd like to have it. Okay.
0: I'm sure that the good Lord is listening in.
1: Well, I hope so.
0: Tommy James, it's a great pleasure and honor to meet you, to learn from you, to read the book that you did about your life with Martin Fitzpatrick. Please let him know that we thought he did a beautiful job oh, with will. you. Thank
1: you so much. How and best uh,
0: we love you and we appreciate you. We wish you and your wife and Carol, your manager, all the best.
1: Bless your heart. Thank Bless you, so you. Much.
0: It's rainmaking time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Crystal Blue Persuasion I'd like to thank Andrew Abong and Bruce Barker, for whom, without their cooperation and great work, It's Rainmaking Time would not be brought to you. Thank you so much, gentlemen.